Welcome to another edition of, of the Pool Request. This one was pulled together sort of last minute, but not. I guess, Patrick, you and I had spoken several weeks ago, and then you had put time on my calendar that I had sort of forgot, not forgotten about, but I, just, I didn't know what it was about. It's like, oh, we're doing the call-in show, and then we pulled in, and then we pulled in Balaji, and, and, and here <laughs> we are. Um, and, and yesterday, we had a whole meltdown among various billionaires over, over crypto, which we can get to at some point, but I, I don't want to get to that down that rabbit hole too, too, too quickly. Um, but I want to talk about what we talked about earlier, what, what you've been working on. Wouldn't call it a meltdown. I'd call it a... a dis- <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's what I had with Apple's HR at one point, a discussion. In any case, um, so sorry, that was supposed to be a joke. I, I, can make joke um, I can make jokes at my own expense. <laughs> I can make jokes at my own, it, own expense. It's actually good, by the way, if you just step back, the people now are all kind of poking their heads out and feeling like, hey, I can actually discuss things online and it doesn't have to be some stupid political thing all the time and they can take a little more risk and, you know, so on. So that's actually uh, meta. There's Oh, yeah, no, no, no. So I, as a side theme, I think it's great that the sort of, you know, cattiness that you would see typically see in a back room or a signal group, you're actually seeing it in public, which is great, which I think diffuses a little bit of like the tech them the thought that there's this conspiratorial protocols of the elders of technology who are all conspiring against you when in fact you know half of them hate the other half and they're not particularly in cahoots or anything else um but in any case i think hate is too strong but there's genuine differences of opinion and the thing is that in tech right there's a greater incentive to actually be different whereas in like you know traditional establishment world you basically have to mount the same party line as everybody else and that's that is a fundamental difference substack then makes that different again because to get subscribers to your substack or whatever you have to stand out rather than be part of the echo chamber you know uh, uh, okay hold on Apologies. so patrick is patrick is probably sitting there fuming because we're supposed to sit here and talk about city coin yeah and we've, and we've and we've already gone down the rabbit <laughs> hole of like tech and crypto and and all the rest of it the cold civil war we're in so let's let's cover the city coin thing first and then see where this conversation goes and if um my co-guests are are, are willing to at the end we'll do a q a so anyone who wants to ask questions the q a features actually work pretty well so line up in the caller queue or whatever if, if you want. What we will be doing a Q and A at at the end. So um, the, so the city so the city coin thing is is really cool for for a bunch of reasons. I can't claim to totally understand it, Patrick. By the way, so I, I and in fact I think it'd be good for our guests if in fact we do the um, you know the Eli five version of it. So I'll, I'll shut up at this point and just please go ahead and give us the pitch that you've probably given. 10,000 times at this point, but as any good startup entrepreneur, you'll give it as if it's the first time, probably. Yeah, of course. Um, Antonio, first, I just want to say thanks for having me on. I've been a longtime follower of your Twitter account. I think you're uh, one of the few independent thinkers who have um, the guts to say what you mean and say it well. So just want to say thanks for what you do. Oh, thanks, Patrick. I mean, I, you know, with that ability to flatter people, I'm sure you've, you've, I can see now how you've managed to convince all these cities to go on CityCoin. But anyhow, please go ahead, explain to us CityCoin. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So CityCoins are protocols that unlock a new funding mechanism for cities. And they create an open source ecosystem for developers. So you can think of, um, you can think of CityCoins like city-based tokens that fund governments and give um, developers an ability to uh, increase state capacity permissionlessly. Okay, so um, the first city coins um, that had been welcomed by uh, either the mayor-elect incoming or the current mayor 
are New York City coin and Miami coin. And like, I still am having like this sort of, um, this sort of um, weird, weird feeling like this can't be real, but it, it is like we have two major cities um, that have their own cryptocurrency. And we've created about $50 million plus uh, worth of funding for these two cities respectively. So just for a sense of scale, in Miami, um, their annual budget is about a billion a billion dollars. And at the rate we're going, we're gonna replace somewhere between a tenth to a fifth of Miami's annual operating budget. And that to me is like pretty insane. Uh, you know, New York was launched uh, or activated rather about a month ago, and it's already raised close to $30 million for the city. Um, another interesting uh, sort of uh, news uh, kind of factoid is uh, Mayor Suarez is the first mayor uh, on earth and the first city on earth to issue a Bitcoin dividend as a function of having their own city coin protocol. So now that city is operating like, like an oil rich country where the oil, the oil is Bitcoin that spits out of its reserves. And I find all these things like very fascinating, uh, even though I'm so in, in, uh, into the project itself. I'm such a big supporter. Um, I get the feeling like this is going to be something, if we're successful, this is going to be something that is like part of my life's work. And I hope it is. Um, and then, um, you know, just recently, just to kind of cap it on the developer side of things, um, the Stacks Accelerator, an independent entity, announced a city quench track with some amazing mentors, including Balaji, who's online. Thanks, Balaji, for waking up early. Um, to hop on here, um, and Ryan Shea, I'm sorry, yeah, Ryan Shea, one of the founders of Stacks, Moody Ali, one of the founders of Stacks, Ryan Hoover, founder of Product Hunt, Amanda Fassat, who's like the CMO of Consensus when the theory rig really started popping off. So like, she's, she's an animal. Um, Preeti, a whole bunch of other like really great people. It's like world-class. And so the idea there is uh, we want to fund startups that increase state capacity for uh, their citizens and the stakeholders of um, the stakeholders of that coin. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Knowledge level is among the listenership. But I mean, in, and I know it's complicated because on the mining side, this analogy doesn't quite hold because it, it uses stacking. But to a rough analogy, to someone who isn't terribly familiar with crypto, I mean, calling it sort of a Miami version of Bitcoin, i.e. a coin specific to that city, wouldn't wouldn't be too wrong an analogy, I assume. Yeah, that's that's exactly yeah. it. Right. And then, so, but in terms of the mechanics of how it works, you know, I, I think Suarez committed something to the tune of, was it 20 or $30 million of like the city treasury that they bought into Miami coin? And then... No, they, it didn't cost... It didn't cost the cities anything, literally zero. Oh, oh, so, oh, sorry. So the, the, the float right now from Miami coin, and forgive me if my data is a little wrong because I looked it up like when we last talked a month ago or whatever, but it's something on the order of 30 million or 40 million is the market cap, right? Yeah, so the ecosystem has generated, um, I think like $25 million for the city of Miami over the past three months. Got it. And that's all denominated in stacks. And stacks, just very briefly, is the crypto... It's a crypto that brings smart contracts to Bitcoin, and it happens to yield about 10% APY in Bitcoin, which allows the city who holds that stacks bag to generate Bitcoin yield for its citizens. 
it's it's funny. So I mean, the stacks thing. It's funny. I was going to try to buy some stacks to to go and stack with Miami Coin, and I realized you actually can't buy it through like Coinbase. You have to go through FTX or Binance or something. And so I'm still stuck in the KYC loop with FTX. So I haven't been able to actually buy any. I'm but, so sorry. I'm up to, I'm 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 optimistic though that it'll be on more exchanges soon enough. Okay. Um. Okay. And and so then. So Miami was obviously the the pioneer here, which isn't too shocking given Suarez. Um, but it sounds like Eric Adams is in the mix. I mean, I, I'm shocked that something like Cheyenne, Wyoming, given their um, enlightened crypto policy, hasn't jumped into the mix, even though obviously it's a, it's a tiny little town. You but, know, why, why, Wyoming is actually probably better to start a new city. Oh, I see. Well, I guess you can do that in Wyoming, probably. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you can. So they have, they have this law... In this DAO law that allows you to incorporate a DAO as an LLC. And hypothetically, you could create a town that's just a DAO. You could literally use the CityCoins model, brand it, make it something sexy, have it have a strong meme that attracts the right types of people, and like literally just slowly terraform a DAO. Balaji's done a lot of writing about this. In turn, um, he, he, I, I believe he like references this as um, you know, people starting in the cloud and descending upon land, essentially like communities starting in the cloud. And, yeah. Yep. Well, yeah. So, I mean, like, there's basically. Uh, actually, we just had an article out in uh, in foreign policy actually on uh, that touched on this. But I think there's different ways in which um, you know cities, countries, states, communities fuse with social networks and cryptocurrencies. Kind of the the land of the cloud fuse. And one way is the reverse, where the cloud community then starts crowdfunding land. And the other is what we're seeing in Miami and NYC with the city coins but also in Wyoming with their adoption of DAOs or El Salvador with Bitcoin. You're like seeing a piece of the Ethereum cloud touchdown in Wyoming and the Bitcoin cloud in, uh, in, in El Salvador and the city coins, you know, with the stacks slash Bitcoin cloud in, in NYC and, and Miami. And I think you're going to see much. So, so Balaji, um, you're speaking to us while wearing a cowboy hat in boots Next to a muddy Jeep, 100 miles west of Cheyenne on the thousand acres you just bought. Is that is that right, Paul? That's right. That's right. And actually, one of my telepresence robots that is capable of doing that. That was all a lie, by the way. Nobody, nobody fly to Cheyenne. Balaji isn't actually there, as far as I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so what, um, essentially, the, the ability to now choose potentially Wyoming over Delaware uh, is, is like this huge thing. Wyoming actually, I didn't know this, um, but, but what, I, what I believe is true is they actually invented the LLC. And so them pioneering on this um, with DAOs is actually a big thing, but, you know, by, 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 by legalizing them. And I think this is what you're just going to see. Cities around the world are pioneering these best practices for, um, you know, there, there's this Bitcoin city in El Salvador. There's what, what is happening in NYC and Miami now with what Patrick is doing, where uh, city coins are, are being used, among other things, for crypto education and crypto dividends, for giving people Bitcoin to, um, to learn about it and also to, to learn how it works. Uh, and, and I just I think that this is uh, it's almost like adopting an operating system for your city or for your zone, because, um, you know, what a, what a blockchain gives you is something it's not just payments, it's property rights it's rule of law it is 
uh, custody. It is eventually the equivalent of marriage, birth and death certificates, all the type of stuff. Right. So that's, I think, where this goes. Essentially, uh, eventually we think of a city coin as like the OS of a city because you also have identity on there. Right. You have all pairwise interactions that are sort of formal interactions you could eventually put on there. And, uh, you know, one way I kind of think about this is, you know, if there's a file that's just important to you. It's on disk. If it's important to others, it's online. And if it's really important to others, then it's on chain. So meaning if it's important enough to others that they want to see like an audit trail, they want to see um, exactly how much was transferred to who and when they want to see that there's provable scarcity uh, and, and so on and so forth, all valuable kinds of data, you know, that eventually goes on chain um, and is protected by, you know, proof of work or a similar mechanism. And I think that's a good way of thinking about how these sort of uh, piece of, um, of, of information are divided up and cities will will take more and more of the important things that they currently uh, deal with in like a, a, like a land record registry or something like that and put that on chain. Mike Sarasti of Miami has talked about this. Patrick, you um, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, an example right now is this week, um, about $5 million worth of um, crypto is going to move from Miami's city wallet. And that's going to be converted into USD. So like, you're not, you're not going to really be able to follow that unless uh, in USD unless they tell you what they're using it for, which I believe they will. But at least you can see that, that movement of money. You can see the money moving, which I think is like a cool sort of first step. Um, you know the 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 record keeping is the record keeping is very um, is very interesting to me. Um, the thing that the thing that really the thing that really gets me going is kind of like this i this idea of stakeholder voluntarism or you know open source cities where anyone can uh, you know create software to try to improve the city or to try to make its citizens healthier, wealthier, and happier. And I think, um, you know, very often cities uh, are an actual uh, bottleneck for getting things done. They can't do everything, you know? Like, I think if you were a startup, if you were a startup running as, uh, operating as a city, um, you would probably be like, oh my God, this is like incredibly difficult and there's, there's a whole lot of moving parts. Um, and I guess, I guess, I guess, like, I guess what I find interesting about this is like for the f really kind of for the first time, um, you can add value directly to a city and the virtual representation of it, like the, the protocol itself, uh, without asking for permission. And I, I, I think, I think, I think we're. Our, our goal is to like upgrade civic engagement and upgrade city governments. Like we don't want to, we don't want to throw out old, we don't want to throw out old institutions. Uh, that, that would be like really bad, you know, like you know, institutions organize police forces. They, they, or, they make sure uh, the roads are clean and, you know, pothole free, although they could probably move faster on that with, with an application that's developed and incentivized uh, to get potholes fixed quicker, for example. Um, but um yeah, let me do yeah, I, I mean, I'll jump in. So this is something I've actually thought about, which is, um, you know, you can build a billion dollar business from your laptop, but it takes a billion permits to build a shed in San Francisco, right? So in the digital world, we can build, but in the physical world, we are constricted and restricted to such a point that 
you basically only have read access to the physical world. You know, you can move a chair around your room, but that's just about it. You can't like really move around the walls or, you know, even build something in the backyard, anything there you are discouraged in many ways, even on your own private property, then forget about public property. You know, you can't be like civically engaged and, you know, do the equivalent of putting up a stop sign or, or fixing a pothole or something like that. People have essentially thought of that as, okay, that's obviously the city's job. Not only is it city's job, you can't even do it. Right. And so you live in a read only physical environment, but digitally, that's not the case. Digitally, you can contribute, you can build things. Um, you have total root access and, you know, many of the issues, the obvious issues of externality. Oh, what if I put up a stop sign and it's at an angle or crooked or people don't see it or, you know, it hurts somebody. There's liability. Once you start going down that road, you're like, oh, there's too much risk. Nobody trusts each other in this community. Even if we live near each other in the city, it's a it's a group of anonymous people who don't know each other. And so, therefore, there isn't trust. So, therefore, uh, nobody can build anything without the say-so from this centralized actor. And that's how you kind of get uh, wh- where we're at. However, in the digital realm, because you can build things and because you can build them, you know, totally in isolation, um, such that there's no spillover negativity to anybody else, but then present them at the end. And then you can have them consensually docked with uh, a city or a community or a government. That is actually a different model where you can start building public infrastructure uh, on your own as a volunteer and then merge it with, uh, you know, a city or a community or a county that wants to adopt it. And so I think eventually those become things that can also start scripting in the physical world, but start in the digital. So, so just hold on there for a second, Balaji. So I, I, I love the speculation thing, and we've rapped about this for a long time. But I, I think one thing that's interesting about CityCoin, and I suspect many people will have questions about, and, and I have personal questions about, is how does crypto interact not to say that crypto isn't real, but the IRL world of like, as you said, like sanitation workers and plumbing and stop signs and the rest of it. Specifically, Patrick, in the case of Citicoin, like you said, I mean, they're going to transfer $5 million out of the wallet that, you know, you raised via Citicoin. And, you know, it, like at the, expe- at the possible risk of being a little bit bureaucratically dull, like, do you know what's going to happen with that? Is that going to just disappear off chain and like go into the general fund of the city of Miami? Like how, yeah, so, how does, how do these things interact? Yeah. So different cities are set up differently. So some cities have mayor's funds where the mayor can act more like a CEO capital allocator. And then other cities, you know, you have to go through a slightly more bureaucratic process where, you know, you have commissioners sort of vote on the allocation of funds. But the reality is, uh, uh, this new sort of archetype of mayor that we're seeing in Francis Suarez that Balaji calls uh, CEO of the city um, is one that has a lot of soft power. And, um, you know, by being proven right in their actions on an ongoing basis, uh, they're able to essentially, you know, have some say in how the funds are allocated. I I, I, I believe that does exist. Um, and so how I think uh, funds will be allocated is probably a mixture of both uh, commission, like commission or, um, you know, board, board, uh, buy-in, uh, from a city and, uh, a bit of what the sort of mayor, um, uh, wants to, the mayor sort of acting as a CEO, um, wants to allocate the funds for. So you'll have a spectrum, of course, um, with Miami, my guess is some things are going to go directly into benefiting all citizens and, you know, Mayor Suarez is, he looks positioned to do a large educational campaign that teaches people about Bitcoin and Miami coin. 
Um, and he's already announced that he wants to use the Bitcoin yield from um, his his treasury or the city's treasury to do a Bitcoin dividend to their citizens. So, um, you know, directly inc increasing people's wealth. And that's something you can measure on chain, which is amazing. Um, so but, there's, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, sort of to ask a macro question, you know, what what do you think? So, so in some sense, again, just just to recapitulate, you know, it's a Bitcoin for the city. It's it's not a DAO in the sense that it's not a governing body, right? Like, I mean, you hold it, you mine it, whatever, and you know, it gets used by the city as other funds do. It's just denominated in a cryptocurrency. I'm curious, what do you think? Obviously, this is not financial advice, but mm -hmm. what do you think? You know, the value of Miami Coin will will fluctuate as a function of like why why would it go up or go down? Is it something the city would actually do? Is it the perception of Miami as a crypto capital? Like what what is the drives the economics of it? Uh, you know, just beyond the day to day speculation. Sure, I I think the use and utility of the, of the coin. You know, some some coins are simply meme coins, like you know. Doge is just an inside joke where when the price goes higher, the joke gets funnier. And the value of that community is just they value humor. And so that's that's sort of how they value the coin. There's a bit of affinity that is that that goes along with this coin. Like that's that's a real thing. Like, you know, what do you get for owning a part of the Lakers? Like, does it get you a free seat? Maybe not, but you are a stakeholder in success of that entity. Uh, and that can be a city. Now, there will be um more and more utility of the token. And I think largely you want to get to a stage where utility drives the token's value more than the meme itself. Um, and so it's part of the reason that the Stacks Accelerator is doing this big accelerator to get a bunch of projects, you know, building and getting the help they need to build. Um, yeah. Okay, but like, do you see, I don't know, if, if Suarez were to lose power in like an upset election, would, you know, would it crash? I don't know if, if oh sure 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 so like yeah uh, you know if you if you have a if you have a mayor that's that's making terrible decisions um, if you have a mayor that's like not solving the homeless problem that's uh, kicking tech out of the city essentially what you're left with is a bunch of stakeholders who are betting on the turnaround of the city and so those people are only holding because they think you know maybe it'll turn around eventually but the market cap should go down if. Market cap should go down if the um, if the mayor is, is not um, a good leader. I, I think I think that is I think that that's that's a very real thing. So I mean, okay, if those economics hold, I guess it's time to buy SF coin, right? We, we, it can't possibly get worse. Although Balaji probably disagrees, but that raises the question. By the way, how have you not? I'm sure you have Ray, you know, pitched London Breed or the SF City Administration on on SF mm -hmm. coin. Yeah. Um, um, and interestingly, I think SF is actually a little bit more, a little bit more technologically progressive than we think, um, just a little bit. Um, that, that's that's what I'll say. And, uh, you know, cities like SF and Austin, I think, are prime city coin cities. Um, I think if you have those cities, New York, Miami, Austin, San Francisco, you essentially, I think you've like activated the U.S. You know. It's like you're on first base at least. Like you hit a base hit, and you can potentially move on to other countries. Um, but yeah, I think you know, uh, SF's only a deal if you believe in the turnaround. You know, it's like the market, the market, market could be like up, down. You know, it, it's these are these are things that are sort of hard hard to predict. I, I, ju I just want there to be an SF coin so I can speculate on the chess of recall. That's what I, I, I just want a thing to go up and down as a probability. Well, well so 
two thoughts on this. One is that, um, you know, like, a, you know, for we saw something in, um, in South America where there's uh, an election and um, Prospera, a startup city, and, you know, Honduras, there, there's, there's essentially a change of government and these folks are against, um, you know, startup cities. And so, you know, we'll see what happens there. I think the founders are actually very competent. I think it was written in the law and the previous government welcome them. But, um, you know, the ideal is you have a decentralized network which touches down in many different locations so that you limit your risk uh, due to people changing their minds in any one location, similar to having 100 or 200 or 500 or 10,000 or whatever number of customers, such that the impact of any one, you know, deal going south is, um, is bounded. And so that's like one way of, of dealing with that issue you just raised, Antonio, where, you know, people change their minds in election. Um, the, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's like a highly concentrated enterprise market in a sense where, um, you know, you don't have thousands or tens of thousands of companies, but hundreds of somethings of governments, but you do have hundreds of governments and you have thousands if you take all cities worldwide. Um, the, the other thing is that um, uh, with, with city coins, the once you have um, like a Miami coin or NYC coin or something like that, over time, that can become like the keys to the city, like a login mechanism for things. And, um, you know, I mentioned this before on Twitter a few times, but I think we're moving from the two party system to the end the city system because, you know, it's almost like not really being noticed, but, you know, Eric Adams is a Democrat, you know, Francis Suarez is a Republican, but they're extremely nonpartisan relatively in their public communication. Many people wouldn't even be able to guess a party affiliation from their tweets, which is very much not <laughs> what the last five years have been. And so moving from the, you know, two party system to the end city system, each, you know, uh, city mayor is thinking about how to make all of their people more prosperous and bring, bring in, you know, the most talented people. And it just kind of realigns incentives. So there's ideally friendly competition between uh, jurisdictions. Um, so those are just kind of two things. Oh, and the third is that eventually, I think, in a sense, sort of like uh, there's municipal debt. You know, think of this almost like municipal equity. You might have to legalize it or figure out how to, how to make that analogy exact. But if you did have a publicly traded price on a city, that would actually be a way for people around the world to support a city or buy into it. Um, and of course, you can in theory do that right now with, you know, municipal debt, but those are markets where, you know, there's, there's no obvious equivalent of a coin market cap or, or something like that, which is a sort of consumer phenomenon. And I think that'll be a way of showing um, strength in a city where if it's going up and to the right, then people are like, okay, what's going on here? This is pretty interesting. Once you have a, you know, map of hundreds or thousands of city coins. I mean, it's funny, all this conversation reminds me, um, and, and maybe you'll find this a flattering or not flattering comparison, but, you know, it, it's a little bit uh, you, like the early 19th century America before the Federal Reserve was founded. Um, you know, states issued notes, even like large hotels issued notes, like large organizations would issue currencies or scripts, right, that would just be used. Or, you know, you go back to the Hanseatic League in the whatever, the 14th or 15th century, and, you know, Lubeck would issue its taller that you would trade for the one from Dusseldorf or whatever. Um, and it's starting to sound like that, in a sense, that you've got a store of value tied to a certain urban ecosystem. And again, there, you know, there are, there are historical precedents for this. Um, 
And, you know, it'd be nice to have some way to go either long or short a city without actually having to buy real estate. Not that you could take the short side of real estate. Um, I guess there's REITs, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, so, so, I mean, Patrick, if you're willing to share, like, what is the, is, what is the big, is the big vision, some sort of Hanseatic league of American cities in which, you know, it, like Balaji is saying it, you know, there is a city has a market cap in a sense. Mm-hmm. And if you're long or short, the city, you can buy into it. And, you know, it would be kind of like municipal debt in the sense that there'd be some yield to it, assuming that there's growth. What, what's the, what's the bigger, the bigger vision? Yeah, the, the thing with municipal debt is when you're really making money on muni bonds, that means something really wrong has gone, has, has happened. Um, um, well, they well they I, have I they have preferable they have preferential tax treatment, which is why they investors tend to buy them. But but you, but you're right. And in city in city coins should we should we should argue for city coins having the preferential tax tax treatment. We've essentially paid in over fifty million dollars worth of non tax revenue. So um, I, I think that's that's a I think that's a justifiable thing to argue for. Um, also, I just, I just realized yeah, so that I, think, I, think, I, I also just realized that the perennial shit talking online about like New York versus San Francisco will be like a lot more real when yeah. you go look at somebody's wallet and you see how much NYC coin versus SF coin they have. Mm-hmm. And if they're really putting their, their totally. mother, you know, the- well, it's like a voting, it is like a voting booth, you know, uh, um, you know, you used to vote with your ballot or your feet. Um, with your ballot half the time you're kind of pissed at who gets elected or the person that you do get elected is not necessarily held accountable until the next election cycle. You vote with your feet. That can be kind of hard if you're trying to uproot your family and move somewhere else. It helps, you know, being like a bachelor, if you can like, you know, move from SF to, you know, uh, Nevada, for example, uh, more easily, or, you know, you, you have like less of a, less of a route. And voting with your coin, I think is like super interesting. Um, and so, the interesting thing is you vote with your coin uh, and the market shows who's voting for what. If the market cap, if, if, sorry, if the market price of any given city coin goes up, uh, it should follow that the city's revenue should actually go up commensurate to roughly commensurate to that amount. So for example, if Miami coin 10X is in value, Miami coin hypothetically pays off their entire tax, their entire uh, tax obligation. It's a big win, and that's a market that, that that win is that win only happens through a market mechanism, essentially a, a voting booth. You're getting you're getting feedback and signal from the market. The mayor is the mayor is not talking about the city coin, or they're not um, getting folks building on the city coin. They're not they're not getting the city coin integrated into their city. Um, the, the market might reflect that. Um, so the you know the broad like thirty thousand foot view is. Crypto's here. It's not going away. You can't turn that omelet back into an egg. And I believe we're going to build uh, civilization on 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 crypto um, and on Bitcoin. And I think a lot, a lot. I think a lot of. I think a lot of the vision for there's a, there's a lot of interesting vision for crypto, but um, for me, like what really gets me going is this idea of getting society to reorganize itself in a way that is more capital efficient, uh, in a way that allows more people to have skin in the game and prosper. You know, you, you want to like take people out of the realm of being digital feudal serfs or, you know, not being able to in- invest in something or be a stakeholder in something and, and have them be a stakeholder in successive things they understand cities being one of them. So like to quote one, one quote I love from Balaji, he, he, you know, 
he says, um, we don't want crypto anarchy, we want crypto civilization. And that's like a quote that's like burned into my head and I think about it every single day. Um, and I think with a crypto civilization, there are, there are new rules, you know, you value signal over virtue signal. I think, um, you know, you don't want to be a free, you don't want to be a free rider. You want to, you want to be someone who, uh, who contributes and has a bias toward action. Um, you know, you're someone who holds for long-term, um, and generally, generally, you know, prefers, you know, building and, and getting stuff done over talking. And there's a whole lot of other features of, of like a crypto civilization that I think will be different from the civilization we have today. Um, and Balaji could honestly speak, speak much better uh, on it than I. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, thank you, Patrick. Yeah. So basically the concept of crypto civilization rather than crypto anarchy, it, fi- it, it seems at first, like just kind of a fun meme, but I think it's actually pretty important because, um, you know, you, you unbundle and you rebundle and we need to have, um, a vision for something better on the other side, not simply, it, it seems difficult to have two ideas in, in one's head, which are a don't trust the current institutions, but B put trust in each other, you know, like, just to have both those ideas in one's head at the same time, people seem to only flip to trust, you know, everything and you're bad if you don't trust or versus, you know, don't trust anything. And you're a, you know, um, you're a mark, you know, if you, if you, uh, if you do trust these scammers and frauds and those, I think are two bad equilibria because we sort of need partial trust. The problem is that partial trust is hard um since you know you can't probabilistically score everything on a daily basis so instead what people will do i think is evaluations of you know whether it's uh sometimes individuals but often um you know whether it's products or regions and then trust that region and then trust everything else within that region and the same with it sort of you're let behind a corporate firewall and then you have a higher level of permissions or not necessarily evaluating every individual action and so um, once you start thinking about that as a goal, that uh, you want crypto civilization, not crypto anarchy, um, then you, you start thinking about, okay, how do, we, how do we build this better order on the other side? And that means merging governments with coins. Uh, and I think that's what that's, that's about. Um, Patrick, uh, you know, I think that's a piece of it. Definitely. And, you know, it's not clear to me necessarily whether this is, some like ship of Theseus where you're trying to replace every single uh, component of the existing government and turn it into something completely. You should explain. That's a great, that's a great, uh, uh, you know, um, classical. Yeah, sure. Uh, so essentially ship of Theseus uh, is uh, essentially the idea of uh, uh, if you replace every piece on a ship is it, uh, over time, is it still the same ship? Um, and you know, if you replaced every single piece of a car, you know, is it the same car? Like, no, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's not, maybe like in spirit it is, but, but in, in, from an information standpoint, it is not, uh, it has completely different information. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of times, when, uh, you know, it's actually funny, Balaji, when you're, um, when you're interviewing, when you're being interviewed or talking to Eric Weinstein, I think you guys were sort of talking past each other on, on this specific point. Um, he was arguing for saving old institutions. Um, and I think you were sort of arguing more for, uh, 
not necessarily burning them down or burning them down and replacing them, but just like you know, offering better solutions that, you know. Yeah, um, routing around. That could eventually replace. Oh, so yeah. They're, they're related because um, unless, see, people think, you know, oh, reform is, is, you know, what you should always do. The thing is that unless you actually genuinely have the option of building something new, you're not really even choosing to reform. You're being sort of forced to reform. And for the same reason, you know, as I've written, but for the same reason that we have blank sheets of paper or an open text buffer, or you can start a new company, you know, like a new C Corp, um, or that you can ever do something new. You don't, always want to try to repair the old you want to have the option of doing something new and then what happens is if you can do something new and you can build something better in your own regime then uh you know sometimes you can come back and the proof points that you have will flip enough previously skeptical people in the old world that they will convert to your way of doing things and that's certainly what happened with the usa itself where you know, a small percentage of the world, you know, immigrated out, built, you know, various institutions that then have were massively influential on the rest of the world. That's what happened with Google, where it started in search, monetized in search, it ignored the desktop. And eventually, though, it built an office suite and a G suite that did compete with Microsoft, but only, you know, many years in. And that's what's happening with cryptocurrency, where, you know, we built like this completely parallel thing of Bitcoin that rejected fundamental premises. You know, it said, actually, no inflation small inflation is not good. It's bad. Actually, you know, custodial, everything is bad. Um, actually, programmability is good uh, and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, it rejected every premise. And then an entire space was built out on those concepts. And now it's sort of coming back and merging, but from a position of strength, because that strength is actually what's convincing people who, you know, might not have been the extremely earliest adopters of tech, but are at the still relatively early, the 5% or 10%, you know, demographic within these institutions and they would adopt. And, you know, this is similar. In many cases, the, the do the new thing strategy is optimal because, A, if the old world doesn't reform, you at least have the new thing. And B, the new thing often makes the old world reform. And the example of this is, you know, as I mentioned, Google went into the office suite and so on. And it was Google and Apple and Facebook during the 2000s that eventually forced Microsoft to reform. They had such massive external proof points that even Microsoft in its, you know, sort of ivory tower and it set it all up in Redmond, they're like, okay, we need to switch from Bomber to Satya and actually embrace, you know, cloud and open source. I mean, Microsoft's acquisition of GitHub, people, unless you lived through that era of, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, Microsoft was so insistently anti-open source that their acquisition of GitHub you know, a decade plus later was a huge capitulation, right? Um, it is uh, it is similar to saying, oh, you know, Bitcoin versus governments and then a government adopts Bitcoin like El Salvador. And this is also similar to, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, like the Hegelian dialectic. Um, but that's, I think, the way of doing it. You know, you the best way to reform is to build the alternative totally on your own terms, prove it out, and then the reform. Well, Balashree, so just one comment there, because... So I had this this post last week about, you know, there is no them and it's about tech and media and it was this dinner I had. And anyhow, one of the footnotes that came out of that was that, you know, I think one of the dividing lines that I think is actually clear between like us, quote unquote, techies, whatever, and like the rest of the world is this business of being an institutionalist or not, right? And I think most people, even people who are in some sense have gotten like chewed up and spit out by the machine, 
still believe in the machine, right? They just believe it should be under their management. And so I think that this willingness, this will to like disrupt that tech just assumes as like a, an, an article of faith, I don't think most people have. And in fact, a lot of people find it actually very scary and kind of irresponsible of tech to embrace that worldview, which, you know, doesn't mean they're right. But anyhow, just to highlight, I think that's the Delta biology. I think, you know, we, you see my yeah. essay on like the, on, on God's state network, like the, um, the, the one that for Satonia, he gave this really like flattering title to it, but S O T O N Y E dot substack.com. If you look at that plus biology, basically, um, you know, I kind of made this point that there's three Leviathans, um, not one, but three, you know, forces that hover above, fallible people to make them behave in pro-social ways. And in the 1800s, it was God, where people really believed in God in a way that we you know, don't appreciate today, where they really believed in fire and brimstone. And so why didn't you steal? Because God would smite you with a lightning bolt. It was a form of decentralized order, where this is why people wanted a so-called God-fearing man you know, in power, you know, that old saying. And the reason is that even this very powerful person where, you know, anybody... Uh, no, no individual could check them. He's been given all his power. Well, uh, they do fear God above them. So even if they are alone, um, they won't abuse their power because they fear hellfire, right? And uh, so in that sense, God was sort of the basis of this decentralized order. Um, and uh, so then what happened, of course, by the late 1800s, um, Nietzsche wrote, God is dead. And enough people no longer believed in God uh, among the elite that a new Leviathan had to be found. And so that was the state. And of course, the state had been rising for some time. But essentially, even if you don't believe in God, the boys in blue are real. And so the rise of uniformed police forces, of course, but also, um, you know, the 20th century was the pure state in the form of, you know, the Soviet Union. And then there's also a God-state hybrid in the form of the U.S., which was, you know, the Marine Corps, you know, 1950s Marine Corps was for God and country, you know. And uh, so now, today, in the 2000s, so that carried us through the 1900s, this huge war between the pure state and between like a God-state hybrid of the U.S. And now in the 2000s, uh, if in the 1800s you didn't steal because God would smite you, and in the 1900s you didn't steal because the, you know, the, the state would punish you, in the 2000s you don't steal because the network won't let you. Um, either the social network or the cryptocurrency network, you'll get mobbed or... Uh, you lack the private keys. And so the thing is that that thing that you identify, Antonio, is um, it's basically people who are of the state, right? It's the people of the state versus the people of the network. It's not necessarily institutionalists versus not. There are radical people of the network as well. Like Bitcoin maximalists are like, you know, they put as much faith in BTC as a person of the state puts in GOV. You know, just like the person of the state has replaced GOD with GOV, this is this thing of, you know, like God will fix everything. The government will fix everything. Bitcoin fixes everything. You know, it's something where there's a, there's a human thing of monotheism, monostatism, mononusum, where you kind of put all your faith into one thing. Um, and so it's not... Jack Dorsey! <clears throat> I love Jack. I love Jack. And I think his values are in, in the right place. I disagree with him on, on tactics. Um, but but I do, I do think that um, it's not exactly institutionalist versus not because it is kind of where you put your faith, the people of the state versus the people of the network. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, the people of God obviously aren't, you know, haven't disappeared. They're, they're still around. They just were much less powerful over the, um, over the course of the 1900s, the, you know, the 20th century. But I think that uh, th there's an interesting aspect where 
the people of God and the people of the network, the past and the future um, are in some ways aligned against the present where, you know, if you have a decentralized order, you might have more small religious communities like, you know, places like, uh, you know, Israel or Kyrgios Joel um, or, you know, small Buddhist or Hindu or Christian or whatever communities like, you know, the Benedict option, um, you know, Ross Dreher's book. Uh, you know, I think I think you're going to see potentially more of that. Um, but in terms of what is prime, I do think that, you know, the network probably is the strongest of the three Leviathans this century. And that is kind of what's happening in terms of merging with these distributed networks. So it's funny you dropped Curios UL. I might have to translate that um, <laughs> policy, but that is a, a very traditional like black hat Orthodox community. Um, and it, it's as a total side thing, you and I tend to digress when we chat policy, but like the, the thing you're mentioning, which is that one, one thing I think that's missing from your network vision, right? It's not necessarily God in terms of like explicit God, but you know, the sort of Walter Benjamin vision of religion as some hidden moral order that we're trying to bring into being. And I think that's one thing that, you know, nerds maybe really do worship or at least, you know, kind of assimilate themselves into a network. I think most people find that to be a difficult organizing principle to actually get around. Um, but, but I do think that I, I do think it is true that you will see that more traditionalist religions will come to the fore. And I think often liberals, because this is part of their scorn for religion, assume that, you know, people who are spiritually religious are necessarily technically, technically backwards. And of course it's not true at all. Um, you know, the first time I actually used the web was actually in a in a very Catholic university. Um, the order is called Opus Dei, if anyone knows. It's this very traditionalist uh, sect, very powerful too. They have a school in D.C. and stuff. But in any case, they had these you know amazing. You know, it was it was sort of a medi- slightly medieval religious belief, but you know their technology and they they run like the best you know business school in or one of the best business schools in Europe. Yes, um, and so, and, and then also the, the Chabad, which is one of these conservative uh, or Orthodox Jewish sects, you know, had a, had a web page in 1993 and they're actually super into crypto. Actually, there's this guy, crypto rabbi on Twitter and stuff. Who's a Chabad. Oh, rabbi. okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. 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 And so anyhow, I, I do think there's something powerful about, you know, very motivated, you know, very co- cohesive religions and also, you know, technical sophistication. I think that's a hidden power, but that's kind of a. I'd love to steer the conversation a little bit back to sort of crypto protocols if we can. Um, I, I do, uh, Antonio, I agree with um, this one thing you wrote about in the past about um, essentially everyone has like a religion size hole that they will, they will find a way to fill. Um, and um, you essentially just need to have the sort of, you know, requisite nutrients or uh, mimetic, uh, you know, power behind it in order to, in order to make it happen. You know, so for some people, they have Bitcoin maximalism, some people, they have wokeism, some people, you know, worship the government, some people uh, worship, yeah, some people are born again Christians. Um, uh, maybe question for, two questions for biology. One, one is, uh, if we're going to get, if we're, we are going to get the sort of Ivy covered dupes, the people who think they're elite, but actually are totally scripted by mainstream media to recognize that there's a reduction in state capacity by um, the you know, sort of traditional Western governments at large and uh, get them to start contributing toward um, you know, something that looks more like a uh, more positive, some uh, sort of free to opt in sort of network state. Um, what, what, are, what, what do you think is like the catalyst to that? I'll, I'll stop there and just maybe ask that one question. What do you think is like the single most thing to convert um, 
people install that idea into people's heads. The concept of the network state? Um, well, I, I think it's actually, I mean, the network state itself is, uh, just to explain what that is to folks here, um, you know, I can give a definition, which is, it is a social network with an integrated cryptocurrency, a definite purpose, an agreed upon leader, and a plan to crowdfund territory. So it's not simply a digital construct, but one that has sort of physical projections, you know, tendrils and so on around the world in the same way, uh, you know, sort of like a Google or Facebook has many offices around the world or in Indonesia has lots of islands separated by ocean. Um, you would have uh, a bunch of territories around the world, uh, you know, whether it literally individual houses or cul-de-sacs or um, small towns or cities that were all conceptually and digitally part of the same network with the same single sign-on. So you wave your same login and the doors open, just like you wave your Google login and the doors open, except it's not commercial real estate alone. It's commercial plus residential plus industrial plus so on, right? So you have this distributed state. It's a physically distributed state. So that itself is an important concept, I think, because, you know, network nationalism is rising. That's what you know, uh, like coin tribalism and, and so on is, um, we, you know, we are seeing something where currencies are becoming sort of like languages or ethnic groups um, and there's borders between them and, and so on, just like, you know, French versus German um, or, you know, Chinese versus Japanese currencies are uh, communication protocols. And so there, there's a, there's a sense in which um, people sort of remain within one boundary because, uh, they know the culture and the language and the wallets and so on of other people who share their their currency protocol. And so, um, you know, this this age of network nationalism that that is arising. If you think about what a nation state is, it's just a group of people in a physical region that set up laws. And, you know, it's a million people who set up Estonia and they control that territory. But in theory, a million people from the cloud could crowdfund land that was as large as Estonia. And if a million people in one place can set up laws why can't a million people around the world do so um, if it's 10,000 people in 100 locations, right? So that is, or, or with some distribution, doesn't have to be uniform like that. So that is the cause of the network state. And I think that itself is, is, a, is a powerful concept, I believe at least, where you're kind of generalizing the ideas behind cryptocurrencies to crypto cities and crypto countries, just like mining being physically distributed makes it robust. The network state's physical distribution with, you know, 10,000 points around the globe makes it very difficult to nuke, to invade, to attack. You know, many of those locations might even be encrypted such that it's a secret state, like a secret society um, where you can only even see the map or parts of the map if you have, um, you know, sufficient login access. Right. Because you have to hold an on-chain thing in order to be able to see the augmented reality flag. Like you put on your glasses and boom, you see the flag glowing. Actually tweeted something about that. Okay. So network state though is, I think it's a powerful concept, it's a powerful tool, but you need a purpose for it. Right. And I think that purpose should be um, something that's important enough that, you know, it's, it's worth, you know, building this complicated thing if it's possible to build it. And I think that's going to be something like transhumanism. You know, a while back I, I tweeted something out, which uh, I was like, super soldier serum is real. Did you guys see that tweet? No. Uh, wait, I'll retweet it. Hold on, let me find it. Um, but basically, uh, the hold on, let me retweet it. Essentially, um, most people don't realize the extent to which uh, biomedicine 
has produced these incredible miracles that, that that just have not been able to filter out to the public. You've probably read all these articles that say scientists at Harvard, scientists at Stanford have discovered X or Y or Z, you know. And so what I just retweeted is something where uh, you remember you guys ever see Captain America, you know, the super soldier serum. Is, is that me on the bottom? Yeah. <laughs> It looks a lot like you, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, have you seen, did you see this tweet, uh, Antonio? It says, I just, just RT at the top of my feed. I, I, I'm ready to have my brain exploded. I'm, I'm, I'm going, yeah, there we go. Okay, man. I, okay. My brain has been thoroughly, I, I see some hunky dude and I see a chicken breast and I see a rat. So my brain has been, I, I advise everyone to go look at this tweet immediately. Okay. Right. So let me explain what you're seeing here. At the top are two mice, wild type, and one with a myostatin null that's being genetically engineered. On the left is the normal mouse's chest, and the right is the, like, super soldier myostatin null mouse's chest, right? And the reason I kind of juxtapose them like this is it literally is like Captain America, where you can go from this, you know, wimpy Steve Rogers to this super jacked guy. Like, this exists in mammals, in mice, reproducible and this is from like the mid 2000s, okay, this particular paper. So for years and years and years, we have been able to radically improve uh, things like muscle mass, uh, you know, and there's, there's people now, um, there's, there's another thing I can RT, let me see if I can find this. Um, so Balaji, do, do, do you just want abs without doing like crunchies and sit-ups? Is that, is that what's going on? Because Maybe not, maybe not. That's the thing is because you could be like super jacked without having to do anything, right? You know, there's some people who are just okay. born like with naturally higher levels of muscle mass, right? And, right. you know, one thought, by the way, is that because muscle is metabolically expensive, the reason that we don't all have huge amounts, the reason there's some distribution is it costs calories. So if you had a ton more muscle mass, there'd be a catch, which is you could eat whatever you wanted and nothing would ever happen. So you could eat like 5,000 calories a day. What a catch, right? So- um, so the thing is, this is just like one example, but there's like absolutely amazing stuff in biomedicine. This one presents very well visually. That's why I included it. There's other things that show like gray hair reversing and people anti-aging. Um, you know, let me see if I can find that one. Um, and wait, so Balaji, how does, how does this go back? Sorry to the, yeah, to the crypto community. Because thing? you yeah. need a, an important enough purpose to build something like this. And I think that the angle that, uh, you know, the angle of attack, the angle of, you know, ascent or whatever you want to call it is going to be something that doesn't really exist right now. But there's a lot of energy around, which is um, transhumanism, which is um, getting to infinity, right? Like actually really improving human health. And, you know, what's funny is we're, we're seeing sort of the negative version in, in the same way that, you know, Satoshi was a reaction to the negativity of the bailouts, like a lot of attention was on finance. And then there was an alternative that was presented to that in the opposite direction. All the attention now on COVID, on, um, you know, vaccines and so on and so forth. You know, there's, there's sort of a status quo approach. And then there's like kind of a negative rejection of the status quo. But then there's like a positive rejection of the status quo. For example, you know, one argument just to talk about this for a second is, oh, you know, like, I, I don't trust this because it was approved so rapidly, you know, oh, the FDA is in cahoots with the big drug companies, blah, blah. And there's another argument, which is, well, why isn't everything approved this rapidly? 
Why, why can't we get lots of things through? Because there's lots of things that kill more people even. I mean, COVID is on par to kill about, you know, 10 million people. But, you know, uh, there's other things that, that kill even more. Um, why don't you guys, you know. Well, um, well so, I, so Balaji, I, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're confirming my suspicions that a lot of like the metaverse and the crypto stuff is basically sublimated Gnosticism, right? I exiting the physical into the spiritual realm via transhumanism, which is a secular form of it. But let's, can we assume some baby steps? Like, for example, assuming DAOs actually have like LLC. Can you tell, clarify to people that you're saying Gnosticism, yeah. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, just because uh, I yeah. have to gather people might think you're, you know, saying something else. Go ahead. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Which, anyhow, I won't even deviate, distract conversation, but just Google it. It was an early Christian heresy, and you, you see a lot of the thinking showing up in, in a lot of Western thinking in, in many forms. Um, but so, so Balaji, like uh, assuming Dowser actually have like LLC treatment, like an actual entity in, in Wyoming, what, you know, why can't people either do a city charter or buy a bunch of land and turn it into like, a, like the server farms you have out in Eastern Oregon or a solar farm? Or why can't it organize some, you know, something that's currently organized via submechanism, whether it's like a joint stock company, like an equity type thing, or whether it's a conventional city settlement? Wh- why not take a baby step and just have... And, 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 you know, I think it would be, you would have to come up with some reason to actually go, you know, that's a problem with a lot of these utopic th- schemes, right? It's like, well, why should I move to rural Wyoming and live on 3000 acres? <laughs> like what is there? And you'd have to create some reason to be there, but you know what? That's what right. I was getting at. That's right. So you need a definite purpose, right? And the thing is, by the way, that could be many things. It could be that you want to build a vegan community because if you have 10,000, 50,000 people in one zone and it's just, assume that everybody's vegan, all kinds of complexity drops out. You don't have to ask, is this vegan? Everything at the grocery store is vegan. There's, there's returns on scale to having a bunch of folks in the same region share your values such that you don't have to argue every basic premise, right? Um, you know, or you might want to have a, a language zone, right? Let's say, I don't know, Turkish or, or Chinese or something like that. You actually have something where it's an intentional community of people who can immerse uh, themselves or their kids in the language. And it's just kind of assumed that every stop sign and so on is there. Even if people are all English monolinguals, similar in some ways to how Israel turned Hebrew, you know, from a dead tongue into, into a live language. Someone might do like a Latin community just for almost exactly that, that purpose. Right. And but but I do think you need a purpose and that purpose can't simply be money because, I mean, look, money is fine, but it's, you know, it's, it's just a tool, right? Like we want to, we want to build something that we can't buy. That's why we're in the game. And, you know, I, I recognize there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a thousand things we can say about money, but I think that um, like crypto itself is just a lever to get to the next thing. It's not the thing. Yeah, I think, oh, oh go ahead. But, well, I, well, I, I just wanted to react to that, you know, Balaji, because just to take the other side of it for a moment, like, I, again, you know, joint ownership and joint consensus mechanisms have existed in various forms. Like, like I said, from literally charters to cities, which is how a lot of cities in, in the Western U.S. were founded, to everything like whaling ships, which were remarkably equitable and were very similar to startups in that everybody had a share of the actual take and you didn't really get paid until the very end, very, very analogous to a startup. So th- there's lots of examples in history and and then, like I said, even like cities that had their own city-based currencies. So all, all these precedents exist, but like, wh- why do you? What do you think is keeping 
people from organizing more things along these lines because it it does seem to have a lot of advantages from like early liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. And yet somehow you you don't see Alaskan fishing boats being organized according to DAOs, or, or you don't see new cities being founded according to charter DAOs, or or, or maybe well, or maybe I'm being the negative Nancy and, and no, no 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 you are basically the thing is like you know there's the great march of centralization over the last several hundred years up till 1950 has meant uh less risk and less reward for most people so it has flattened out it has homogenized it has mediocritized it is you know conformized until you get the 1950s where it's just all you know everybody's a company man and nobody's everybody's equal and nobody's exceptional and that's the best version of it the the u.s version the worst version of it is you know the soviet or chinese you know communist chinese version you know where everybody's equal because they're equally poor right but everybody's flattened out homogenized yeah there's no there's no reward there's also no risk and you know the thing that you're talking about like the whaling and so on startups there's risk there's there's a possibility yes there's more upside but there's also more downside and so now technology is favoring decentralization from centralization you know this, as i mentioned it's a it's starting arguably 1947 you have the transistor and then you have the you know uh the personal computer and then you have uh, you also have cable news and you have um the internet of course and you have the mobile phone and now you have cryptocurrency and so you have a series of inventions that are decentralizing power and more that are coming you know from 3d printing to you know instant travel around the world telepresence the metaverse blah blah blah, all this stuff so uh so because of that the, these big centralized things can no longer set your risk for you right that is that is the thing that is changing um because most people are risk averse but some are not and the ability to opt out and take a risk, which might lead you into the drink, you know, you might, you might be worse off, but you might be way, way, way better off. That is new. And that is what is changing. I would love to, I would love, I would love to uh, maybe synthesize or add, add to that. Um, if you look at web two, uh, the, the famous Mark Andreessen quote was uh, software is eating the world. I think you look at web three and what's different now the quote would probably be more so markets are eating the world. And so, you know, this idea of affinity coins, meme coins, um, just ways for people, there's intrinsic value in community organizing around a coin. There's intrinsic value in that. Um, one is it's coordinate, it help, allows for coordination. Uh, two is it creates uh, a stake in, in an idea or an end goal destination. You know, uh, Balaji, had, Balaji had a really good point about SpaceX being essentially a hallucination uh, as a startup when it first started, but as it makes progress, it gets more and more real. And um, you know, landing on Mars doesn't sound uh, so crazy. I think another uh, thing that exists now is this concept called outsider trading, um, which would have never existed before if there wasn't like a heads up view of everyone else online. You know, so it's it's no longer it's no longer, it's no longer that the insiders actually have 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 the edge; it's that the outsiders are actually defining the terms and defining what the markets are going to be, you know, um, um, that's a I think, great term. That's a great term, Patrick. Is that your coinage? Uh, it's not my coinage, but it is, uh, found it somewhere. I don't know where the attribution is, but the, yeah, it, it, it's great. And, uh, it's, it's, it's memorable and it's accurate. Um, so like people can just say, I like the coin. They don't need any other excuse besides saying, I like the coin. And what that allows for, uh, what that allows uh, to happen is essentially a mass hallucination in the in the cloud about an affinity that can make its way onto the land. So you might end up having 
people that are super into the metaverse, super into specifically like web VR. You know, they're like, they don't care about augmented reality. They just care about web VR. And they might start a web VR town and everyone there is just super into it. Uh, the town is like tuned up um, to make web VR like a, a thing that's like welcome and exciting. And uh, just as Balaji kind of um, referenced, um, you know, um, Indonesia being a country that has many, many islands, but it's still one country. You can have many sort of enclaves that represent certain affinities and they can be scattered all over the world. And some people may be required to be scattered in some, uh, to be, you know, put on their affinity coins ashram or whatever, um, because they can't exit their state. Uh, but they can go, they can go to a place where um, they sort of set the rules, et cetera. Um, I love this concept of actually technologies that require a physical network effect. Um, to me, that's a precise way I had been thinking about it in terms of, you know, a self-driving car zone and so on. But you're right. Even something like, you know, in a particular API for augmented reality, if you have a thousand or 10,000 people in an area, that is a great way of testing it. Um, like really testing. It's sort of like Pokemon Go. Um, but you have like the Pokemon Go town and that town, you know, by the way, depending on how mobile people are, they don't have to like completely be there forever. If we look at the new, you know, Airbnbification of things, um, they're seeing way more people booking on like Mondays and Tuesdays and so on, because in the remote world, there's only three locations, right? Same office, same time zone, different time zone. So long as they're within the same time zone, people really don't care where they are. Genuinely don't care. Don't know. Don't care. And um, so with Airbnb, they can move around a bit. And so one thought is they just toured this zone and they're there. They're almost like seeing Disney World. And they're like, okay, why don't we check this cool town out? And they're in the visitor zone for, you know, two months or a month or a week or whatever. And then they check it out and maybe they don't like it or like it and move on. And that's interesting. Almost like, uh, you ever been to Epcot Center? It's kind of yeah. The, the story behind yeah. Epcot Center is, is insane, actually. Um, well, so Walt Disney was trying to de design a utopia city and he died in the middle of doing it. And, uh, and his brother essentially was like, ah, forget it. And just didn't finish the vision. And that's, that's Epcot center. Well, Epcot is pretty cool. At least I enjoyed it a lot a long time ago. I haven't been recently, but something, sorry, I, I, I sorry. What, what I mean to say is Epcot center, I think uh, was far more aspirational and it was supposed to be like a, a model that was supposed to grow legs from what I understand, but perhaps, Ah, right. Yeah. So it wasn't just meant to be like a theme parky kind of thing, but that big, yeah, like something like that. I mean, that's what's cool is with these, you know, startup cities, you know, Praxis is trying to do this, like build really awesome monuments to technology and science. You know, I think um, once you control, uh, you know, the physical territory, yeah, you can build awesome statues. You can build things that photograph well from, you know, from drones, you know. <laughs> Just like the Instagram pose, you could have the Instagram pose. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's kind of an interesting thing. You could have a town that was set up to photograph well from from a drone shot. There's all kinds of interesting things you can do once you have a thousand, ten thousand people in a physical environment that agree with each other. Um, and city coins. There's another aspect actually. We we didn't talk about this yet, Patrick, but city coins help with this, I think, because up to this point, you've done phenomenally well, I think, on getting existing cities. But an interesting concept is for new cities, for new startup cities like Cul-de-Sac or Praxis or uh, things Pronomos is funding or Prospera or uh, some of the stuff that's happening in Africa and whatnot. Um, for new ones, uh, some of the issues associated with NIMBYism could potentially be solved if you have a, um, a real estate DAO. 
such that people don't actually own the land under their house, which is non-fungible, um, but instead they own shares in a REIT uh, that basically belongs to the whole city. So you have, uh, you know, for example, 10,000, uh, you know, city coins, and that corresponds to the equivalent of something like 10,000 shares in the citywide REIT. And so thus you are incentivized to bring people in uh, to, uh, to, to increase the value of that REIT for everybody. And you're also more flexible on maybe selling your house and moving if, you know, a skyscraper needs to be built um, and you're less nimbiest because it's not a huge chunk of your net worth that's trapped in this physical zone. It is actually part of a citywide digital thing. There's more citywide feeling versus a guy on one block being completely economically disaligned with somebody who wants to move in, right? I, I'm not sure if this will work, but I think it's an economic experiment that's worth trying. And this I is like, something else. I like, is oh, yeah, I, I like your idea of um, permit you know, requiring city coins for permitting as opposed to the REIT, because REITs can't 100x. Um, but demand for various you know, utility on city coins uh, can create 100x, which I think... Uh, I, I like... Go ahead, go ahead. I, I would argue, I'd argue that because... REITs could 100x if you were an early REIT in Hong Kong or Singapore. Yes. Uh, yes, and that, that's sort of a segue to my second point, which is uh, starting, starting a new city is fucking hard. And um, some people are going to be able to do that, and they're going to be successful. What I like about um, – and, and I and – hell, I'll, I'll, like Wyoming is looking pretty tempting, even regardless of it, of it being hard, I, I will say. Like – I'm kind of tempted to like reach out to Kanye and be like, Hey, do you want to start, do you want to start a city in, in Wyoming and we'll do it on the city coins protocol? Like that is very tempting. However, governments already have a governance mechanism that is, um, that is, has been set up for hundreds of years. Um, that, you know, people are bought into that gives legitimacy to the meme of that, uh, city, that municipality. And by sort of bolting on city coins, what you're doing is you're giving a market mechanism, uh, that can vote. That can vote itself. Uh, you know, it can say yay or nay just by holding mining or building on the, that specific city coin. Um, but you also have a democratically elected capital allocator for what it's worth. And um, I think a big problem in per, um, crypto protocols is that governance is also very, very difficult. Governance is very difficult because trying to do everything on chain uh, typically results in you know people who have the most money end up defining uh, all the rules, which is I'm not necessarily saying that's always a bad thing in all regards, sometimes it's a good thing. Um, but governance in crypto is, I think, something that is very difficult. And, and, and maybe even a model that requires KYC or requires like civil resistance, like something that a local municipality can do is, is, is worthwhile to sort of bolt. Yeah, I think I think there's different models, right? There's the guy with the most guns, there's the one with the most people, there's the one with the most money, and so on and so forth. And which roughly reflect, you know, um, you know, arguably the reality of states is the most guns, the illusion is the most people, and um, the you know then corporate governance is money. Um, and so I agree with you also that a lot of uh, like governance experiments in crypto are sort of Rube Goldberg machines where you know, I think it's fine for people to try things. And sometimes Rube Gold machines work out like stable coins. Some of them have worked way better than I would have thought. So totally, you know, but um, I also agree with you that it is really hard to start a new city and it's good to retrofit. And you're sort of, we're sort of eating the, you know, the, um, the licorice or whatever from both ends uh, where, you know, like retrofitting will get 
much more energy early on. Then you also have these folks who are trying to do zero to one and maybe those meet in the middle and have a common tech stack or, or, or something along those lines. Um, so, oh, one other thing, do you want to talk about the permitting thing a little bit more because we just kind of skipped over that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so uh, one of the issues with bringing uh, a big corporation to your city, like uh, like a city like Austin, for example, is that it creates a huge footprint, which creates more traffic congestion. It creates um, creates higher uh, prices of real estate. Uh, and one of the benefits of city coins is that it creates no such footprint. Uh, and that's just like a quality. You get like the big company without the footprint and with all the tax revenue. Um, but the issue is when people do, you know, uh, find that city interesting and want to move there, they disproportionately drive real estate prices up. Um, even if a small number of people move up, move if, if supply is tight. And so, uh, you know, people who are not making as much money are priced out of the market. But what if you could... Um, essentially ensure that those citizens at least have some skin in the game in, in the case that um, those real estate prices do go up in value. Um, so, you know, if real estate goes up, well, maybe your coin went up commensurate to the real estate price going up, or maybe it went up more as a function of its demand. And so um, this idea of requiring a city coin, and I know the CIO of Miami is on the call, so maybe it's a good idea for, for him. Uh, the idea of um, the city sort of issuing permits for new builds uh, being uh, making like required payment being in a city coin. For example, my, let's say Miami, you want to build a new house. Um, all right, well, that's, you know, you got to pay uh, X dollar amount of uh, uh, Miami coin in order to do that. Why do we do that? We do that uh, essentially as a way to offset the rise in real estate prices so that the community doesn't get left behind. So that's, I hate to use the term equitable because it's so abused today, but it's kind of a more equitable um, way to do things. Um, potentially, and that was Balaji's idea a few days ago. It's pretty good. Balaji, can I? Can I? Um, yeah, I wanted. I wanted to ask you. I want to ask you about app ideas. So, like, what is an app idea with city coins that's just like burning uh, in in your brain that you're just like, I I want to see this. You know, even the MVP of this would be amazing. Um, you know, well, I think um, education is probably app zero where something like, you know, Coinbase Earn or some of these other learn-to-earn things, um, it would be good, where it just teaches people the absolute basics of, you know, how to use a wallet, how to send and receive, buy and sell, you know, prices and how they go up and down and how, you know, don't put anything you can't afford to lose. All of, all of that kind of stuff that we sort of take for granted is app zero because that's sort of onboarding to everything else. You know, the history of Bitcoin and Satoshi and, you know, how, all, all that type of stuff. Okay, number one. And then um, number two is, I think, be really interesting, uh, you know, one model I think I've mentioned before is um, tasks for city coins where the city has this discretionary budget and uh, you could imagine both sort of spontaneous and, um you know, sort of centrally assigned tasks where people do a stadium cleanup or they, you know, paint a mural that beautifies the city or they recruit somebody to the city or something like that. And one model is that there are K, uh, you know, members of the city council that each hold M city coins as a discretionary budget. And they, there's just like kind of money that they can give out publicly on chain via a tweet to somebody who's helped the city somehow. And the accountability for that is just that, you know, 
um, you're going back to discretionary budget, which is actually the total opposite of how many cities work, you know, where they're very bureaucratic and it's not flexible and you have to have a huge vote to do something. Instead, you essentially have folks who are almost like venture capitalists in the sense of being capital allocators and they're capital allocating for discretionary budget to help the city. And a relatively small amount of money sometimes can go a long way on things, you know, that you, you might spend 300 million on a bus lane, but it might only be a, you know, like, like San Francisco did. Um, but it might only be like a few thousand dollars for this really beautiful mural that, you know, beautifies an existing bridge, for example. Right. And so I think something like that, where there's a, there's a school spirit, a city spirit aspect to it, because cities have become very anonymous platforms where, you know, people move in and they don't know the person to their left or to their right. They don't know the person who's living above them or below them. They are literally just cells in a network, almost like, uh, you know, renting an AWS virtual machine. And you have no idea what computer is running next door or this, you know, uh, but you do know other people in the social network. And so I think this could be a way of maybe restoring some degree of community spirit, you know, whether it's funding for just lemonade for meetups for people, you know, to, to get together again, like they did, you know, 70, 80 years ago. Um, that's the type of stuff I think would be good. Some way of building. Let me add two more filters. Um, the app can be permissionless. So anyone can build it without the permission of the city. And it increases state capacity in some way. And maybe we just use uh, health, happiness, and wealth. So for example, like uh, a health dashboard or uh, anonymized wealth dashboard, or an NPS score. Do you have any uh, thoughts around sort of permissionless um, sort of applications that oh, yeah. any community member could do? But, but I mean, Sure. Yeah, so I actually mentioned this a while back, uh, and somebody actually did a V1 of this. But, um, you know, if you think about it, what is, you know, if you're an executive or, you know, you're, um, you're an investor or something like that, what do you really look at when you get up first thing in the morning? Well, back in the 80s, you know, people would get a newspaper, you know, a physical newspaper and open it with, you know, orange juice or a coffee and look at it. Um, and some folks would look at stock prices. But most people would look at the headlines, et cetera. Nowadays, I think what we, you know, people do is they, they might open Twitter, but a better thing to do is to look at their dashboard. Um, that is to say the dashboard of their critical metrics of what they care about, which could be certainly their company, but also their personal portfolio or their health or, you know, something else like that, right? The dashboard is something they care about tracking. And I think that that's an important concept as what, you know, maybe the future of local news is. Not, you know, random headlines, but a dashboard. So you can actually track historically whether the city is part of the ascending class or the descending class. Are metrics actually getting better or not? And you can click on the dashboard to see how those metrics are being calculated because that's always a process in its own right. And maybe there's you know, a bug or data corruption or, you know, the axes are weird or, or something like that, right? And so there's a guy who actually did this and I RT'd it a while back where he built a, a, a dashboard. And the thing is, this is a different way of thinking about what local news should be, not necessarily locally physical, though that's, you know, certainly fine, um, but, but absolutely locally uh, within the social network, meaning a bunch of folks who are concerned about the same things who are in the same social network, who sh share the same values, have a similar dashboard, they're monitoring the same things. And, uh, you know, that could be, you know, in the context of a city, you know, it's the population, but it's also the crime rate. It is the value of the city REIT in our example. It is, uh, you know, I don't know how many, what percentage of kids are passing 
um, a, a math exam, all of these kinds of metrics that people might look at with a city compare or that they might look at when you know using Zillow or something like that. They're now tracked citywide and they're put in this kind of open source dashboard. And, and then those become sort of your inputs for a fundamental analysis, a Buffett-style fundamental analysis of the value of the city and whether it's going up or whether it's going down. And you start making, you know, the head of a city think like the CEO of a city where they're thinking about, OK, how do I bring in economic development for the city? How do I, you know, boost the metrics on this? How do I compete with other cities for citizens? And of course, there's a thousand details to, to, to work out here. And, you know, oh, people will try to game the system you know, to boost the metrics and so on. The more that's on chain, the harder that is to do. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's, it's, it, you, you have a predator prey thing where if it's on chain, you can do web of trust and digital signatures, you know, to, to figure out, you know, at least who is uploading a particular input piece of data that leads to a metric, but overall this concept of city dashboards and then assigning tasks, as we said previously, to boost those city dashboards closes the whole loop. So you have, for example, a metric like, you know, how many people did you recruit to the city? And one of the tasks is a recruiting task and people recruited a hundred people for $50,000 in incentives, and those 100 people created $50 million for the city. That's an amazing deal in city coin terms. Or it's something like, you know, there's a survey, and in the dashboard it shows people are, you know, they, they don't like the uh, cleanliness of the stadium, or it's like, you know, it's not cleaned up well, so you put up a task, and for a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars, or whatever, you have a stadium cleanup, and then people feel happy again, and that's gone up in the dashboard. And this is actually how one manages a large company, is you have this cockpit, you know, where you, you're looking at all these metrics and you're dispatching capital allocating to try to fix these things. And then of course you have to sometimes add a dial, add a, add a graph because, you know, it's not present. It's not like a normal airplane cockpit. You'd actually add things. So that concept of dashboards plus tasks to boost the metrics in the dashboards is, I think, how we want to think about the future of local news, local governance. Why don't we go to... Definitely. Yeah, I... I was going to one more, um, one, just add one more comment and definitely go to questions. Um, one, uh, there's an accelerator uh, at stacks.ac forward slash city coins, where if you want to build this, uh, you can get funded and have really great mentorship. Um, and uh, we could, we should probably do like a hackathon for this. I'd, I'd be happy to fund like 25K and, and get it done. Okay, so um, thanks for that, Balaji and, and Patrick. As usual, it was a uh, convivial conversation. Let's turn to some of our callers. Hopefully they're still there. I see um, Elijah up next. I see more people getting in line. So by all means, uh, please collect at the virtual mic. And um, Elijah, are you there? Hey, yeah, sorry. Uh, I, my question might be a bit off topic. It's, it's more so on uh, what's relevant uh, right now uh, on Twitter with uh, Jack Dorsey. I just wanted Balaji's thoughts on, on where you think he's coming from. Um, in the, uh, I would say, actually, I, I don't know. How, how would you say it? Like, where is he coming from with this whole, uh, concentration on like the VCs rather than everything else that's amazing about it? Well, so, I mean, Jack is a friend, uh, and, or friendly and, and, you know, I've spoken at the square conference and so on. And I think that, um, I share a lot of values with Jack, um, but may disagree on tactics. And I think where Jack is coming from is, uh, you know, Elliott Capital Management gave a lot of flack to Twitter 
recently over the last year. Um, and, uh, you know, who knows, that might have contributed to Jack recently leaving. And so there, there may be, um, you know, like, like madness at investors in general, and that translates over into VCs. But I think that the, um, uh, you know, if you look at it, Ethereum raised zero VC to my knowledge, right? Whereas all the Web2 companies raised tons of money in VC. And, um, you know, if, if it's framed as like Bitcoin versus all these other protocols, I don't think that's actually the right frame. I think if you think of it as Web3 protocols are more decentralized than Web2 companies, not just Twitter, but Facebook and Pinterest and Snapchat and all the rest, all the so-called wall gardens. Uh, I, I do think that that is, that is true. That's where I'm coming from. With that said, I think, um, you know, people can, can differ on this. I think that Jack's values are in the right place. Like, you know, he is uh, definitely moving in, you know, like a, like a pro-freedom direction. I don't think he liked the censorship and other things that were happening on the platform. In fact, you know, his, his talk to Congress um, several months ago, Michael Solana wrote it up. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of, you know, ends are, are fairly similar, but means may differ. I think that might be the thing is where uh, I personally don't care if somebody makes money on something or not, if they can do it without making money and it's pure open source, wonderful. If it needs to make a billion dollars for it to happen, wonderful. And empirically, a lot of attempts at decentralizing social networks in the late 2000s and early 2010s, if you remember, you know, Diaspora and Mines and Mastodon and stuff like that, they've gotten some traction, um, but fundamentally, these pure volunteer projects could not compete with venture capital backed and, you know, like very sophisticated centralized web two operations. And that was just how the cookie crumbled. That was just the state of the art of technology and finance and sort of the time. And frankly, I don't think VC backed is bad. It's neutral. You know, if you can do it completely on your own, wonderful, more power to you. There's a lot of companies that'd be just bootstrapped and never take VC. VC is just a tool, right? Venture capitalists actually respect you more if you can do it on your own, because then, you know, they're just throwing coins into a hot air balloon, right? And um, so so the, the concept of like, oh, VCs, I actually think that's that's not the case. I think that um, Web3 is actually like reduced VC power to absolute minimum. And not just VC power, it's like investor right. power in general. All right. Right, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. Thank Thanks, Balaji. That was that was surprisingly diplomatic of you. <laughs> I was, well, I mean, look, I, 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 as I said, I think that on balance, you know, there's a lot of things I disagree with Jack on, but you know, it's like he's he's like running a country of 300 million people. I mean, can you imagine every like all these people who? It, one thing as CEO, just to digress on this for a second, one thing as CEO that one realizes is how asymmetric it is. That's to say. For many, many people in the company, their most important professional relationship is with the CEO, but not vice versa. The CEO's most professional, important professional relationship is with the board or their investors or something like that. That is to say, you, you run a thousand person company, and for those thousand people, they really, 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 really care about the CEO and what they think, and the CEO really cares about their investors or the market or something like that. It's asymmetric. It's like the Twitter follow relationship. A can follow B, but not vice versa. So because of that, people within the company end up psychoanalyzing the CEO to this insane extent that the CEO doesn't often even realize because 
they have to sort of predict, you know, okay, is it just a bad mood or does he really think this or is he really changing his mind and so on and so forth. And you can only really understand this when you've been not just on both sides of the table, but all sides of the table as angel investor, as founder, as CEO, as executive, as board member, and so on. It's almost like Rashomon, where you can see this from many different directions. And so once you've done that, you you just have sympathy for the guy in the arena, right? On balance, this absolutely impossible thing. You know, Jack's inscribed his name in history. It's really difficult to build two things, not just Twitter, but Square, to that level of success. And as much as I disagree with many individual decisions, on balance, I think it was something where he's advanced free speech and free market. So I'm a Jack fan, even if there's specific things I disagree with. No, I, 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 I don't have a deep read on it. You know the crypto world, and obviously the, the characters evolve way better than I do. But it just, I, I don't know, it just seems odd. Because on the one hand, he seems like a Bitcoin maxi. And then on the other hand, he seems really kind of dubious about web three and yet but then what the hell was blue sky all about like i i don't know it just seemed like i see i think I, everyone just had a little bit too much whiskey last night and just went hog wild I, I mean so the first two points are not in commensurate like that say bitcoin maximalists do believe that it's a zero to one that nothing else is decentralized that bitcoin is decentralized and so on this particular thing by the way is an interesting angle on the whole space if you believe that more than one protocol can become decentralized then you're usually not a Bitcoin maximalist. I actually wrote a paper on this four years ago, quantifying decentralization, where, you know, of course, at, at some point, right, the Bitcoin protocol was centralized because it was running on just Satoshi's computer. And then at some point it became decentralized. And sometimes people talk about this in like religious language, like, you know, the immaculate conception or something like that. And I don't really like that because of a few reasons. First is people will say A is more decentralized than B. And that intrinsically that implies a quantitative metric a greater than b is a comparator operator right and so in order to do that in order to say a is more decentralized than b you need a metric for what the level of decentralization is moreover even more pragmatically to increase the level of decentralization in a system again you need to be able to allocate uh capital um and resources more generally to do that and again you need a metric for the decentralization of systems so this paper from like four or five years ago quantifying decentralization actually talks about that and says the minimum number of entities that can control a system, that is actually the practical decentralization of the system. So for example, if you had a system that had, you know, a thousand um, miners um, and you had to capture 500 of one of those miners to capture the system, but there were only three developers, then, uh, you know, you could capture just three people to compromise the whole system, even if, there were 500 miners. That's just as, as a hypothetical example. And so the idea is that the degree of decentralization of a system is the degree of decentralization of its most centralized subsystem. And that actually gives you a metric because now if you have, you know, $100 million or a $1 million, you'd say, hey, actually, let's allocate it towards developer education to boost the number of developers from three to 10 versus the marginal impact and decentralization of boosting number of miners from 1,000 to 1,010, we get more of a win for decentralization by doing this, right? Okay, so that is a, as a kind of a lemma um, that gives a framework where you can say, hey, this is more decentralized than this, but not that Bitcoin is more decentralized than everything else and nothing else is decentralized. If you do believe that, then you're a maximalist and you think everything else is a scam other than Bitcoin. Okay, if you don't believe that, then you think that Web3 might go somewhere. Now, I think the part which... I would um, 
disagree with is the idea that Blue Sky will work without any Web3 anything. Um, and let me just, you know, kind of analyze this. Basically, decentralized, you know, social networks have been tried by many, 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 many people. And social networks, as you know, are really hard to build. I mean, Antonio, you were at Facebook. You worked on the ads platform there, right? Like, okay. So the, the reason that, you know, Twitter historically, it was started not literally as a protocol, but it was a free and open API and people could build on it. And Paul Graham wrote this article in 2009, you know, why Twitter is a big deal, where he talked about, yeah, it's not literally a protocol, but you can build on it like a protocol because the company is basically invisible and they just let you send and receive. And in fact, uh, you know, people may not remember this, but in the you know mid late 2000s, um, there were a lot of people who built apps on Twitter that fully replicated the features of Twitter. That say the entire client and so on, like TweetDeck, I think by by you know Bill Gross's Idea Lab and and others, uh, you know, did this kind of thing. And then what happened was. Once Twitter had to make money, they couldn't monetize their API that well to justify opening it up to everybody. In particular, and this is really important, if you are selling ads and somebody can completely clone your platform and they don't have the fixed cost of maintaining the API, they become a competitor to you and can underbid your ads. Let's say you're trying to sell an ad for a dollar. This guy who's cloned your entire front end and entire user interface can sell it for 50 cents. And so you're no longer, the, you're, you, you are the monopoly provider of the API, but not the monopoly provider of the ad. That gives you a financial incentive to cut off API access, to stop people from cloning the entire app and just make them little tributaries. You know, they're, they're fundamentally nerfed, right? They're not, um, they're not full featured. And uh, this is the reason that, you know, there's this huge rollback that happened where every, all these developers who, you know, built for this, uh, you know, were then... Um, basically, developer deplatforming happened much, much before political deplatforming. And this is what gave rise to this backlash where people were like, oh, we're against walled gardens. We want decentralization and so on in the early 2010s um, to basically check corporate power, the abuse of corporate power. And uh, do you remember this? Um, gosh, I can't remember the name of the startup, but it was a it was a startup by uh, Dustin. I forget his last name, not Dustin Moskovitz. Um which uh, was like a paid Twitter for developers. Do you guys... That's the one. That's right. And was it app.net? Yeah, it's app.net. That's right. And so there's app.net. There were so many different efforts like this. And it was cool. It just fundamentally, what he was trying was a different, it was, it was a worthy experiment. It was a different business model. He's like, okay, developers got a lot of value out of building on Twitter. Um, they got deplatformed by Twitter. Okay, if you're not the product, uh, you know, if, if you're not paying, you're, you're, you're not the customer, you're the product being sold. That sort of cynical, but, but correct kind of thing, you know, correct-ish, at least late 2000s, early 2010s, led to things like app.net. And those experiments didn't work because they, they just didn't monetize well enough relative to Web2. And I would, I, would, I, would argue, I, would, I would argue they were in the worst of both worlds between Web2 and Web3, where um, you couldn't monetize the data and uh, you couldn't get the benefits of markets. Yeah, and by the way, on the topic of monetizing the data, just not, not to poke at you, but just that's a little bit of a misnomer in, in general because if you went and just as a thought experiment, if you cloned Facebook's database and you set up facebook2.com and you had all their data, 
you still wouldn't really be able to sell that many ads because people wouldn't log into Facebook too. What you're really doing is using the data to target an ad. What you're selling is a slice of that human's attention, their eyeballs, you know, or, or their, their attention, the target attention on, on this ad, right? But, but I agree with you though that yes, it was the worst of both worlds. So now fast forward to the current day, the fundamental thing that blockchains add is we can revisit all kinds of previous business models with several new primitives, but most specifically the global state of a blockchain plus um, the the incentives it offers, right? So if Web 1.0, and you know, obviously the web is not the internet. You know, the web started with you know Tim Berners Lee and um, you know late late 80s, early 90s. But let's let's call Web 1.0 you know the era from the start of the internet to let's say early 2000s. That was can we build it, right? Will the thing actually even work? And uh, that was really about technical risk. And uh, the, the fundamental architecture was P2P, which was, you know, peer to peer. And you assume that essentially, like clients and servers were basically equal on the internet. Like, you know, I might request something from you, you request something from me, and SSH and FTP and, uh, you know, like um, HTTP kind of work like this, right? Then in Web 2.0, while back in the day, it was actually thought of as a, as a front-end thing, thanks to Ajax and, and more dynamic you know, interfaces in the mid-2000s, we can sort of rewrite history a little bit and think about what happened on the back end, which is uh, on the back end, you had the LAMP stack and you had um, all of this open source stuff that had come out. And now it was something where Facebook could just set up on that early Facebook, they didn't have to do everything from scratch. Um, they could use these, these powerful open source tools. And now it wasn't a question of whether they could just build it, they could build it, but would people buy it? Would they actually have that user behavior? In the Web2 world, you had the huge advantage of this global centralized database. And it wasn't just a peer-to-peer thing where A connects to B. It was A1 and A2 and A3 and A4, all of these spokes connecting to this giant hub, right? And so you had this global centralized database. And because it was global and centralized, you could sell ads and you could monetize the heck out of that, right? And so if you just think about it, Web 1 was P2P, it was programmable and it was decentralized and it was open source and it was free. Web 2 had the huge advantage of global centralized state. And and the reason is that's a technical advantage because if you imagine trying to implement Facebook as a peer-to-peer protocol, you are sending massive amounts of information on every request back and forth to each person. You'll eventually want some sort of caching hub at the center so you're not sending every single photo and every single message to each person every time, right? That, that hub is a really important piece of it. Now, Web3, what it does is, it, I, I would argue, it goes from P2P to MVC and now CBC, from peer-to-peer to model view controller to client blockchain client. And now we actually have the best of both worlds because, in theory, we have the programmability and open source and decentralized aspect of Web1, but we also have a new mechanism for global state and monetization like Web2, except that global state is a blockchain. So it's global decentralized state. That is to say, it's got the benefit of both being a single API endpoint that you can hit, a canonical API, but it's got multiple servers behind it in the sense of all the different nodes and all the different miners around the world. So it can't be just shut down or compromised or you can't deplatform people in the same way. So I do think that's a fundamental new tool where you can go back and revisit all these protocols. For example, XMTP, you go and, you know, it's a Web3 thing that's going and revisiting email because email has become quasi-centralized. Why? Because you have reputation, right? You have domain keys, you have all the stuff that Gmail and and Hotmail and Yahoo have layered on top that has made email quasi-centralized where it's not just something where A sends a message to B and it gets accepted. There's all this stuff for anti-spam and so on that was set up because economics weren't built into email. However, in theory, you could have something where you have 
NFTs or ENS for your email addresses and you stake in order to get reputation and email sending and receiving as opposed to being subject to um, like, like, you know, the, the Google's internal uh, reputation filter on you as an email sender. And, and that actually re-decentralizes email. And you can go and apply this to a lot of different kinds of protocols. And I think, though, that in the absence of doing that, people who are sort of ideologically against money and, and you know, you, you shouldn't be ideologically for money or ideologically against money, but people who are ideologically against money will not realize whether there's just a new tool that we can use to achieve that goal of decentralizing social networks from the late 2000s, early 2010s. Okay. One, 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 point, one point you didn't add that I think is worth mentioning though, is this whole experience is um, essentially uh, anchored to a private key. So the UX, of, of private key ownership and having a root access to something like a decentralized, um, you know, social uh, application is not always that great. In fact, it's probably far more difficult than just having email login at the, at the time. It's like very foreign. And so what happens is people tend to optimize for uh, things that are really high on the totem pole to warrant holding a private key. So that's like money, that's like DeFi, that's NFTs, et cetera. So if, if I were to take a, take, a, take a guess here and sort of um, borrowing a bit from the Union Square Ventures, um, a Union Square Ventures uh, blog post, essentially what's going to happen is like DeFi, financialization, NFT is all first, and then only later will data, uh, will the data side of things. Yeah, here's the thing. If you, I absolutely agree with that. And here's the thing. What, what Web3 gives us is a coherent framework for digital property rights, you know? And so... Once you can defend money on chain, because people will try all kinds of games with money, hacks, et cetera, et cetera, you can pretty much defend everything else. They say if your blockchain is capable of reliably, you know, uh, securing $100 million of something, that'll cover a lot of things that are not just pure financial instruments if, if they are locked in directly. Like if you can secure $100 million, you can certainly secure a fleet of Tesla cars and stuff like that, at least in the digital world, right? Um, and you know, might say, oh, someone could hotwire them in the physical world. That's true, but it's hard. You know, it's much easier to just you know have the the private key and just click a button and, and the thing turns on, right? Um, especially if it's in solid state, you're going to have to find the chip somewhere in that car that unlocks it, the chip somewhere in the wall that unlocks the door. That's hard to do, right? It's possible but hard to do. So, uh, so because of that. Once we solve it in the financial sector, we can actually solve it for lots of other things. This also applies to facts. You know, what like Chainlink and, you know, the, the Oracle network concept does is it's like, OK, if you can secure feeds of prices, you can secure feeds of almost anything else because people have the largest incentive per byte to manipulate a price feed um, relative to other feeds, you know. And uh, so if you can secure that, boom, you can secure everything else. And, uh, yeah, so I, I do think it starts finance for. All right, well, let's move on. If you don't mind, let's get another, um, another caller because it's, people are patiently making a line here. So I think we have, we have Michael next. Let's see, did Michael show up? Yep. Michael, are you there? Hmm. Hi, I'm here. Uh, oh, hey. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it for not uh, hanging up on me. Uh, first, thank you all for a, a great discussion as shown by a number of people in the room. I uh, wish you could have another discussion about this as things play out and develop further uh, so we can see where these ideas go. But I had three questions about the uh, CityCoin concept, really, and they're kind of expansive. The first is, 
<clears throat> it seems like this is a way to generate funds for cities and towns. And my question is, well, if it generates funds and the real successful cities and towns are just a wash in cash and they can pay all their debt and do anything they want and pay for anything they want, at the end of the day, they should be able to create a fantastic metropolis and attract citizens from other towns and cities. And so I guess at the end of the day, how do you avoid yes. kind of a winner take all? I'm not saying it's a zero sum game. You, 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 want, you want competition. I'll be very brief because I want to be respectful of the other uh, callers waiting and haven't been thus so. Uh, essentially, the year 2020 was the year the internet first started. And I think that's a good, good phrase. I don't know if Bali said that or someone else said that. But essentially, remote first for information workers became the default, and people started shopping for jurisdictions just like they shop for products. And so what that culminated, or what, what that essentially activated, was this uh, new game. Uh, and that game is essentially uh, mayors acting as CEOs, recruiting both talent and capital into their municipality. So before, they only had to make in-group arguments to their residents, how they're going to improve the city, how they're going to use the tax dollars, yada, yada. Now they're making outgroup arguments to recruit capital and talent uh, through the markets, through city coins, uh, talent through like, you know, startup crypto founders, um, you know, investors, and they're creating more robust economies as a function of that. And, you know, the reverse of that is really bad. You wouldn't want people fleeing your city. Um, that's a city that's decaying and, and losing state capacity, uh, losing the ability, ability to um, do meaningful things. So, uh, you want that competition. Um, people should demand that competition, just like they demand the right to vote. Okay, and the follow-up to that, although I don't need the answer right now, is how do you bring all the players to the game before the game is already won? Um, second thought I had is, you know, cities are one thing and towns are one thing, but let's not forget they have a certain amount of autonomy, but they're in states, and states write most of the laws. How do you conceptually avoid the states from pulling the rug and essentially outlined certain features that made certain cities winners. And you can conceive that at the federal level as well. And then the third concept I had is you've discussed a little bit about yeah. the funding mechanism. And what I mean by that is, at least for Miami, you've discussed that there will be mm -hmm. some kind of dividend paid out in Bitcoin. Um, yeah. How yeah. is that enforceable? In other words, right now, it really just sounds like a donation. We give the money, hopefully do something great with it. Hopefully, a city attracts more investment um, and and so forth, and it mm -hmm. snowballs. But other than selling the coin on some exchange and the value has gone up, how do you ensure that there is that dividend going to be paid back to you? I mean, is it like a general obligation bond that it's just part of the general fund? The city has money. They'll decide to pay it to you as part of the mayor's slush fund. Maybe he'll give you some money. Yeah. So let, Go, so let, me, let me answer the first yeah, no, I appreciate the question. Let me answer the first question. Uh, I think very rarely do you affect change top down uh, in, say, a 330 million uh, person community. Uh, um, I think uh, the kind of bottoms up way of like peacefully decentralizing and uh, peacefully increasing the um, sort of efficiency and effectiveness of, of um, governments um, Essentially, I, I think you got to do this bottoms up. You have to show that change can happen on a small scale, uh, and then you can make it happen on a larger scale. Maybe there's state coins in the future. Maybe there's country coins in the future. But I think right now we really want to focus as a community on cities and just stick to that meme for now. Now, uh, you know, cities like Miami live in states like Florida, where you know Gover Governor DeSantis um, 
you can you know have whatever opinions you have about his politics he he's pushing to allow states to collect fees in crypto what does that do that creates kind of like a it creates essentially signals that florida is a sanctuary state for um, not only crypto capitalists and crypto entrepreneurs and, and crypto people but also uh, crypto cities and that's a huge huge thing um and even if they didn't even if cities didn't have state um uh, approval it doesn't mean that uh, or federal approval it doesn't mean that cities won't become sanctuary cities you see this happen all over the world um where you know Certain cities will be sanctuary cities for homeless or um, or um, undocumented immigrants, et cetera, or uh, you know cannabis or you know cho choose your choose your theme. There will definitely be crypto sanctuary cities, um, and I think they'll do that because um, I think they'll do that because um, the citizens will benefit uh, so much more by adopt by the municipalities leaning into crypto than they will by um, you know not experimenting with it and playing with it so yeah sanctuary cities that's going to be an interesting concept if that if that really takes off i'm trying to still wrap my head about it uh okay let's move on to the next caller we, we still have two more to go and i don't want to boot anybody who's been waiting this long um let's see next caller is devon are you there devon hey guys how's it going uh, uh Amazing conversation so far. It's actually one of my favorite topics. Um, so it's so big, big fans, uh, you know, and uh, Patrick. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I, I really wanted to just, you know, mention that I really love the idea of the real estate DAO and even the uh, Pokemon Go uh, test city. Um, in fact, I actually work at, a, 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 you know, a DAP super, called Superworld. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of us, um, but we're like an XR virtual world on blockchain, uh, kind of like... Um, sandbox or central land uh, just mapped over the real world and so you know my, my main question is uh you know can we build this pokemon go test city and uh you know what what should we be thinking about um you know to how can we kind of enhance what you guys are already doing uh we definitely love to uh partner up and uh introduce you guys to our ceo and our investor alan or alan goren because uh, i know he talks about this stuff yeah no no partnership necessary it's uh you know, there's no ICO, no pre-mine with city coins. There's no, uh, there's no dev fund. It's like really community organized, and uh, we have a strong bias for action and not asking for permission. So, like, feel free to do it if you want to map Miami and uh, make it accessible using Miami Coin or create some sort of game. Like, just, just do it. No, no need to, no need, no need to uh, have me. Cool. Okay, let's go to the last question, man. We've been hitting almost two hours, which is, um, yeah, I don't know if it's a record, but it's close. Um, we have uh, Garrick. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Patrick, I'm looking on your uh, website and it uh, talks about claiming your city contributions. Sorry, I, I missed the earlier part of this conversation. So if you, know, if you guys already talked about this, I apologize. Uh, no need to answer it. But can you talk a little bit about the process of um, like the cities actually getting signed up? I see here it says every city coin will need its financial controller to claim their respective protocol contribution on behalf of the city. Um, and then like, obviously, you know, you have to vote. It says vote for like the next city. So how is that process working? If you can talk a little bit about that, like uh, are you sort of doing it one city at a time, probably want to go slow. Yes, and, then, and then can you actually talk a little bit more specific about what that means 
the financial controller uh, to claim the respective protocol contribution, because I think that part could be interesting also to put that uh, claim on chain. I don't know if you guys are doing that. That could be really interesting. Yeah, it's really, it, it, it's, it's really hard to do that. Um, it's, it's really hard to do that in an, in an automated way. And that's actually something we're as a community trying to figure out. It's like, you know, how, how do you know what happened? Um, so, um, yeah, so the community um, generally votes off chain right now. We're, we're, like maybe we'll, maybe as a community will move on chain voting, but we're just optimizing for speed and like uh, capturing uh, really great cities. And so really we're just kind of focusing on world-class cities um, that have like great brands, great uh, crypto, um, great crypto kind of like talent that are there. Um, it's also like Uber Black Car. They didn't start with Uber, they started with Black Car and they worked their way down to kind of like, um, you know, less expensive. Well, the community will do the same thing with cities. Um, and the other thing you need, not just community buy-in, but you also need, you need uh, governmental buy-in. The day after Eric Adams was, was, uh, was, uh, was uh, won his victory uh, for the mayor of New York, and he went on Bloomberg, and one of the first things he said was, I want a New York City coin, just like how Miami coin has it. So the community activated the coin in a completely decentralized way, no pre-mine, no ICO, and um, New York City coin was activated. Um, and with New York City, you'll probably have something like a uh, mayor's fund that actually claims custody. And, and uh, we believe it actually might be able to claim custody uh, without having any um, without having uh, any sort of nonprofit holding on, on their behalf. Um, so it's like a dance between the community and the, the mayor, the mayoral, the, the kind of leadership of the city. One thing I think and we want to, we, we, we want to have hundreds of crypto of, of city coins over the next couple of years. Yeah. I think it makes total sense that you're optimizing for speed. I think one of the things that's really great is that you're making connections with these cities. And then what you can do is actually it, once you find a breath, once you can actually, you know, maybe do a second sort of, uh, project would be established. I think Balaji talks about layer zero. I know other people talk about layer zero as something different, but you can actually, now you have those connections with these government officials is somehow start to develop a more fleshed out layer zero. And then now you can do that claim, the financial controller, the proof is on chain. I am the financial controller. And then now I'm claiming uh, city coin or something. It'd be very interesting. Thank you for, for explaining Patrick. Cool. Well, we're coming up almost exactly two hours. I think we should call it a night unless, um, well, I, I, I don't know if I even want to open the floor again to, <laughs> to another Cryptica because <laughs> we'll be here all night. Um, thank you, Balaji, for joining us again. It's, it's always fun to get your perspective, particularly on some of the hijinks that happened yesterday. For some reason, it was uh, a busy Monday in crypto land. Yep. Fine. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Balaji. All right. See you, Balaji. See you, Patrick. Bye, Bye all.